I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. How comfortable are you reading aloud? And what about reading poetry aloud? Some people are just fine by it. Others might have an inhibition or two. But what if someone arrived at your front door, uninvited, just straight out of the blue, with a camera crew, and they requested to film you doing whatever it is you happen to be doing that day for some odd documentary that they're making? And then what if the whole experience is supposed to culminate in you reading a few lines of poetry on camera for no apparent reason other than hey, we're looking for someone who will help us with this project and we think you might be willing, but no pressure. We can just go away if you want us to. Well, would you do it? I celebrate myself and sing myself. And what I assume, you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a, a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil, from this air. That's the voice of Virginia May Schmidt reading the opening lines of the famous Song of Myself by American poet Walt Whitman. Virginia May didn't stiff-arm the camera crew. She let them in. She played along. So now she's in the documentary, and boy, did she perform. Creeds and schools and a band, retiring back a, a while, sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard. Nature without check with original energy. We're about to learn about the Whitman, Alabama project and the film crew that actually did this and why so many unprepared, unsuspecting people went along with it. Jennifer Chang Crandall is a journalist and filmmaker. She's been artist-in-residence for the Alabama Media Group, and she's the creative mind behind this documentary project. Whitman, Alabama is not the name of a town. It's a reference to the poet Walt Whitman. And all of that's going to become very clear in the course of our conversation. Pleasure to have you with us, Jennifer Chang Crandall. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to know your story of your acquaintance with The Song of Myself by Walt Whitman, because there's something, there's a kernel of something there for you that led you to do this project the way you've done it. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm 44 now, but when I was 16, I just moved back to the States from living abroad. Uh, my father is a diplomat, and we traveled a lot when we were younger. I grew up abroad. I went to American schools, and I came back and um, felt very lost in my home country as an American. Um, I'm also, my father's uh, from Denver, a white guy from Denver. My mom's Chinese, but from Vietnam, and I was born in Ethiopia, but I grew up moving to various different countries every few years. So I came back to, you know, what is my home country and just felt sort of out of sorts and how to fit in. And I found this book, American Poetry. It was an anthology. And in it was Whitman's Song of Myself. And... I, you know, read a lot of that book, the poetry anthology, but then when I came across the lines, you know, um, about all of us containing multitudes and just the various, those themes running through um, the poem, I thought, someone's speaking to me in a way that I haven't been spoken to before, or, or an established voice, or voice that people listen to is sort of talking about how we contain multiple selves within each of us. It, it was finally something that helped me understand something about myself, and so I you know, have appreciated it ever since. So that was the very beginning, and, and just you know, years later, I was able to bring him back into my work because he, the themes of how we contain multiple selves is something that is, has been running through my work forever. So it was, it was great to, to be able to turn to him and, and really sh showcase um, the lives of everyday Americans in, in the American South, as well as Whitman's voice um, through his poem and, and sort of bringing it all together. You, you go around Alabama, 
you go to various corners of the state. You could be anywhere. You could be in a courtroom. You could be at a service station. You could be on the front porch. You could be on the, the, the side of the road by a bunch of cows in the field. And you find people. And once you've found them, you ask permission and you say, do you mind if we get to know you a little bit and film you a little bit? And by the way, I want you to read a, a little bit of poetry for us while you're doing it, if you feel comfortable with that. That's basically the, the point of entree to the, to the whole project. You have uh, the segment after segment getting to know people across the state. I like to give people enough information about each of these subjects to get a, a, a feeling of who they are but not enough where they can put them in a box. Because we're trying to say people are complex. They aren't simple. Don't put them in a box. It's to sort of film people in a way and edit the work in a way and offer them an opportunity to do something in a way that doesn't sort of uh, allow each individual video piece or the whole project to be neatly tied up in a bow. Does that, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense because people are complex and nobody wants to be pigeonholed. Nobody wants to be stereotyped. Nobody wants to say, oh, you're the stock cardboard cutout. Is it fair to say that you're trying with the entire – can I call it a documentary, a film documentary? um, There's so many segments to it that you can actually dive in and just see one or two or three of these and and feel like you've had a well-rounded experience with with each individual you meet. But that's the nature of portraiture. I mean if I'm walking through a gallery – in a museum, mm-hmm. and there are portraits lined up. I'm not committed to the whole thing. I, in fact, in some ways, maybe the way to experience this is to spend some time not racing through from person to person, but just spending time with one one individual or a couple of people. Is that is that a fair way to experience the I documentary? There is no fair or unfair way, I think, to do it. I mean, I think sort of like the book itself, um, and pe- you, you meet people randomly. So why should you necessarily meet the first person who read the first verse of this and go through it linearly? I'm not a very linear thinker, so I love the idea that this project allows you to drop in. You might watch a verse and say, I like that, but I'm, I'm done now or I'm busy or I'll come back and I'll watch later. Or I didn't like that at all or, and, and, and not watch much more. But you can plop in at any point, uh, watch a verse, much like you can pick up his poetry and sort of pay attention to one verse more than another. Maybe read three tonight and not return to the the poem for another year, maybe even. So I think that, yeah, with as this project grows, it shows you that you can sort of plop in at any point, engage to whatever depth that you want to at any moment, and maybe return later at a given at another given time because it's not pegged to any sort of time frame, if that makes sense. But you can just sort of wander at will, meet people's will, engage at will, and there's there's no real beginning or end per se to each of these things. You can take what you want from it and see what you can hopefully get something of value from from spending some time with with listening and watching in front of you. So here you are, a film journalist. You go out into the countryside, and you meet a couple on their porch. So you get their permission, and they seem, yeah, you can film us. That's okay. And and then you you film yourself explaining what you're about, what you're trying to do. And then they're very disinclined to have anything to do with it. No, we're not going to do that. We, we're, we're, and eventually, they come around and suddenly they're reading Walt Whitman's poetry for your camera and they're doing it willingly. That's a journey right there of persuasion. How did you, how did you persuade somebody to do something they were initially opposed to? You know, I think I'd have to say that I go into every one of those situations saying it would be really nice if people say yes, but my main goal is to explain what I'm doing and then um, react to the situation. And if it's working, it's working. If it's not, it's not. If, if we're enjoying each other's company or we're giving each other more room to get to know each other and hear about each other and or the project, then I'll keep going forward. But my ultimate goal is never to get people to say, yeah. I mean, the ultimate goal is I have to get enough people for this project to say yes. But there's never going to be one person that this project, if they say no, will bring down the whole project. So I'm ready to get no all the time. I don't want to force a particular outcome. So it's just, for me, it's, yes, there's a camera involved. And not always do I approach people with cameras. That, that particular verse, verse 43, we, we certainly did. But it's, it's, that is very secondary. Primary is to have as authentic an interaction with folks as I can with the camera on or with off, without, but with it off, but being as 
transparent and upfront about what's going on. So some people might say it's not authentic because the camera's on, but we asked them before we even walked up if that was okay. And and so it's just about, given the circumstances, being as, as engaged with the people as possible. And I think that that just means over time people oftentimes open up. Some people say yes immediately, and some people over time open up, and then some people, um, very few, but some people have said no. And I think the project still works when people say no. And so it's, it's, it's empowering people to be who they are in the moment. And if that lands um, with a no for the project, that's great. But at least we've had as real an experience with the individuals that end up on camera off, if that makes sense. I can't speak for the Billy Wayne and Lucy on the porch that said yes. Billy Wayne, ultimately, the husband was the one who said yes. I can't speak for his true and reasons for saying yes. I can just say I really appreciate it. And from my point of view, that's what I was trying to do. Let's give another quick listen to a short excerpt from the documentary Whitman, Alabama. Walt Whitman, a cosmos of Manhattan the sun, turbulent, fleshy, sensual, eating, drinking, and breeding. No sentimentalist, no standard above men and women or apart from them. No more modest than immodest. Unscrew the locks from the doors. Unscrew the doors themselves from their jams. Whoever degrades another degrades me. And whatever is done or said returns at last to me. Through me, the effortless surging and surging through me, the current and index. I speak the password primeval. I give the sign of democracy. By God, I will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms. We'll continue our conversation about Whitman, Alabama, the documentary, after this on Constant Wonder. On Constant Wonder, we're visiting with Jennifer Chang Crandall about her documentary project. It's titled Whitman, Alabama. The creative concept is to go around with her team, her crew. She visits with people quite randomly across the state of Alabama, and so this puts her on the wide open road from town to town. She films them as she gets to know them, and the crux of it all is that she has them read some poetry by Walt Whitman, and then each guest is featured in short vignettes or segments. Uh, Jennifer, I want to introduce the word stranger here because Walt Whitman's poem is about identity and community and democracy and the the complexity of the individual, the many people that inhabit the, the multitudes inside a person. There's got to be a capacity of the poet, someone like Whitman, to approach strangers and greet them and be hospitable and open to them. You as a producer have got to do that. Your guests on the film, they've got to be hospitable. You found a very welcoming state in Alabama, it seems, with strangers. Absolutely. Absolutely. In Alabama, I found that people were absolutely welcoming. And I would say that probably most people in general, globally, would be welcoming. I, I think it's a matter of, of, of understanding that people want to be known. Ultimately, I think most of us are, I think everyone deep down, well, not even deep down, wants to be understood and wants to be known and wants to be listened to and seen in some way. Um, but most of the time, because of the way life is these days, we're reduced to much simpler uh, versions of ourselves just for efficiency and, and for however the tone is in the conversation these days about people. It's just quicker to be able to make declarative statements about people rather than taking the time to get to know them. I think if, if you can, in your daily life or in work or just out meeting people wherever you meet people, if you, if you show that you're trying to authentically engage with them or engage on a level where it's not just transactional, it's about giving people time to see the more complex sides of them, um, I think people tend to give more of themselves. I certainly do. I certainly have when people have taken more time to get to know me because I think ultimately I, I sense that someone's trying to, to see something about me. So, yes, people in Alabama were extremely welcoming. And, you know, I'm always surprised when someone says yes to this project. But um, I think what that's just shown me is that, you know, um, people people want to share something with themselves and they want to be seen. They want to be understood as a little bit more um, 
than we often understand them to be. And on this very point that you're making, that people want to be understood, I'm going to get just a little bit wonky here because I know enough about media production that sometimes you have to wait for what you want to get and you don't know what it's going to be until you see it. You know that phrase that people use, uh, they'll send around an internet uh, on social media, you get some video and they'll say, wait for it. They always say, wait for it. And they're saying, don't give up. You you gotta watch this through until the zinger or until something really special happens. Right. And, And I'm wondering if you haven't experienced when you're on someone's porch or in their store or wherever you are in their wood wood shop wherever they are you kind of agree with them that you're going to have an exchange and the cameras are going to be rolling and maybe they're going to do some poetry but there's just some patience where you just have to hang out with them and wait for it absolutely and it's just it's i don't know if i'm exactly waiting for it i maybe that's what it is i'm just sort of um I have a faith that if I create what I, you know, and I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm, I'm limited, but within my ability, if, if I can create with my, with my colleagues an environment, a best possible environment for what we're trying to do with these folks, then something good will come of it. And it's our job to sort of, to see that, to witness it unfolding, or when it's editing, to catch the moments we might not have seen um, happening uh, like, you know, if I'm looking through the lens on the camera, I might not see something happening through the other camera. So it's just a matter of waiting for it, yes, in terms of being patient. I, I don't direct people, per se, to, like, be a certain way or act a certain way. We say just be yourself. So a lot of it's more being able to create an environment where people will be as comfortable being themselves as possible, despite it being a, a potentially awkward situation. Um, and then... And then something will emerge, yes. So we're, but I'm never, there's never a moment where I'm saying, ah, yes, I got what I wanted and I, mm. I wanted them to do that yeah. or say it that way per se, so much as we're going to do a bunch of takes. We're not going to direct too much of the action. You know, if kids are dancing, we're going to be filming them dancing. Um, and then we'll, we'll put together what sort of happened as best we can that day in the piece. I always like to say that I, I do 49% planning and 51% I leave up to sort of serendipity. And that's find what just sort of can unfold in the moment because you haven't directed anything. It leaves more room for someone to just say something or behave a certain way you couldn't have known that they were going to do because you don't know these people very well. And, and the same that allows us room in the edit to be like, look what happened that we couldn't have we couldn't have known was going to happen. So I guess it's, it's a version of waiting for it, but I'm not waiting for anything specific. Yeah, you're not pounce, you're sense. not pouncing on something when it yeah. comes. Yeah. Right. So so you're sitting in the living room. There's a grandmother. There's her granddaughter, presumably, or a young girl with her, and uh, the grandmother very gently is trying to uh, guide the behavior of the youngster so that it's appropriate. And the and the youngster yawns, and that's uh, and you capture that. And part of the story there that you get to see is the kindness and at the same time the propriety of the grandmother who is wanting the child to be seen in that child's own best light and so there's guidance there's you know this elderly guidance for 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 youth and in in the whole mix of it then each of them recite lines from Walt Whitman this is almost mm-hmm. bizarre so i'm going to have to ask you if the poems the poetry the verses from Whitman are really a good vehicle did they become a good vehicle for people to be themselves or was it were there times when it was an impediment a, a barrier to them feeling comfortable the, the final product makes them all look just incredibly comfortable reciting lines of poetry that are over 100 years old and and kind of archaic yeah you know i think i haven't found the best words to articulate this but i think that something happens when you know each of these folks was knew as much as, you know, knew something about the verse or, or as little about the verse or they attached to it or didn't attach to it. What, whatever I know is that they said yes, right? So I don't know internally how much they've attached to the poem. But I do know that the poem, to answer your question, creates sort of like this almost even playing field or it's, it's the thread that binds everyone that reads together. And it also, it's somewhat... It's unusual. It's a documentary, but we're asking them to do something. So we get to see them in their daily lives, the grandmother with the granddaughter, and they're, they're dynamic with each other. But it's not like I'm going into their, their house and just filming their interaction. They're doing something 
together. So the poem creates this thread, this unifying thing between the two of them, between the rest of the people reading. And because you have to do something sort of, I don't know if the word is extracurricular or something different to what you'd be doing because we've asked you to do it, you see someone, you see people trying to express themselves and meet a moment. They're trying to meet a moment that wouldn't normally, it's not every day someone comes knocking at your door and asks you to read poetry in front of a camera. So part of what it's doing, I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm even understanding this project as I make it, is it's just it's it's creating this this third lane, this this other lane that you can take, um, where that's who they are in that given time. If that makes sense, they're doing something for the audience, for the camera, for themselves, and the poem, because it's not something from their lives. It's necessarily it's not something that they're relating to every day necessarily it's not something they're necessarily familiar with it's this other avenue of expression and then you know you get to see to go back to your earlier question I think it's neat because oftentimes we can I could have handled the situation where we asked the granddaughter to repeat, you know do her lines over and over and over more because she might mess up here or there but instead we're, we're just showing a young a young girl trying to you know, she doesn't read as well as her grandmother yet, but she, she's in the learning process. And you can see that the grandmother is trying to guide and shape her throughout the, throughout the video, too. So you see their dynamic versus if I tried to direct the situation too much, you just hear the grandmother read really well and the granddaughter read really well. And it'd just be two people reading poetry to the best of their ability. But as we do it this way, we give a lot of room for, like, what's happening in front of the camera that we didn't ask for um, that we're trying not to control for, you see a relationship come out and a relationship with the poetry and a relationship with the with the grandma and the granddaughter and, you know, each person with themselves. So I think it's it's pretty interesting. Well, you know, there's so much respectfulness that comes through in the documentary in each of these pieces where you approach people with goodwill, with a good heart, with a willingness to engage in whatever that social uh, encounter, that dance of ex- exchange is going to be, and they reciprocate. And I'm, I'm wondering if there isn't at bedrock for you, it seems, I'm going to just say it, I think, I think there is, but I think there's something fundamental to what Walt Whitman stands for in what people are, what they're about, what they're worth, and how different they are from each other, and yet how they belong to each other. Uh, to me, the, the vehicle of the poetry, and specifically this Song of Myself by Whitman, seems a perfect fit for what you might be aiming for. Yeah, I think that's well put. I, I'm not a Whitman scholar, but what I essentially gravitate towards and pull from in his work is that we are, again, to return to this, we're complex, we're just complex people. And we ultimately want to be understood, whether or not we use that word complex for ourselves, we want to understand, be understood as, as more deeply and richly by those that are around us. That's what I've gravitated towards in, in his work and, and what it means to me is that she just covers so much about the richness and the complexity and the diversity of who we are as Americans and ultimately humans and where we come from and who we relate to and how the things in, in, in nature and, and the cosmos, and I'm, I'm going off here, but that we're all um, related to each other nonetheless in this whole thing. And so um, I just think that his poem provides this, this huge landscape backdrop um, to work with, to sort of reinforce that through hopefully through these voices that we're using and showing their lives. And, and so it's sort of a backdrop of richness and complexity and a poet who's done the work to really unearth the vision that he has of of the way we're all connected and, and the complexity of all that, and then just trying to visually show that through these these lives and voices in front of the camera. It's a beautiful project. Uh, we can learn more about it anytime on this website, WhitmanAlabama.com. The driving force behind it, Jennifer Chain Crandall, a journalist, filmmaker, and photographer, and artist in residence for Alabama Media Group. Jennifer, a pleasure to speak with you and learn more about this. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Marcus. They were the glory of the race of rangers, matchless with horse, rifle, song, supper, courtship, large, turbulent, generous, handsome, proud, and affectionate, bearded, sunburnt, dressed in the free costume of hunters, not a single one over 30 years of age. 
There's more to learn and discover on Constant Wonder after a short break. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. You know, since we began broadcasting Constant Wonder, our entire production team has wanted to do our small part to help us all, our team and everybody who hears the program, to help us see the world differently, more observantly, more carefully. Well, today this whole business of seeing the world differently is going to come into stark relief because we're going to be talking about maps. And maps are certainly a way of seeing the world, sizing it up, figuring out what's out there, what it's like. And specifically, we're going to talk about maps that tell the story of the United States. And there's a reason for that. I'll make that clear in just a moment. Just remember, maps are only partially spatial portrayals of places, but they're something much more than that. They also tell stories. There are plots that can be seen in a map, just like a story has a plot. And America's maps over time have grown increasingly more complex, multi-layered, multifaceted. That's the way things go as we modernize. The world gets more complex. Maybe too often we do think of maps as just representing places rather than telling us these stories. But our next guest is wiser than that by far. She knows that reading a map is more than just the usual reading a map. Susan Shulton is a professor of history at the University of Denver. She has a beautiful map collection available now in print. It's been published. It's called A History of America in 100 Maps. It's out from the University of Chicago Press. Susan Shulton, thanks for joining with us. Thank you for having me. This project is just enormous because it's not just the 100 maps. You had to winnow from I don't know how many hundreds or maybe even thousands of maps, the items you wanted to put on display. And I'm just wondering, what what on earth were you thinking? Why did you go down this road in the first place? Well, um, I guess the short answer to that is that uh, I've long been interested in using maps to understand the complexity and the contingency of American history. This is my third book that relates to maps, but it's my first book that showcases them as the primary sources of American history above all others. In other words, this is a history of America through maps. And uh, to your point, um, it involved not just telling stories that we already knew, but also using maps to try to challenge our expectations and to remind us that the way in which things turned out was just one way in a much larger array of possible outcomes. A lot of people talk about texts, and that word is such a broad, I mean, it's related to textile. It's something that's woven together fundamentally, if you push the word to its roots. And is it fair to think of maps as, as texts? Well, sure. I mean, they're no different from uh, a poster or a piece of art or a coin or a diary or a state paper or a speech. Um, but what I love about them is partly what you referenced earlier is the visual way that they capture um, people's attention and the way that they might startle us into thinking about things from a slightly different angle. There were three important maps in my childhood. One was a huge, big Encyclopedia Britannica edition, and it just basically showed the political divisions of the world. There may have been some topographic kind of depictions as well, but I just remember the political boundaries and the colors. You had to figure out at some point that India was that color and Russia was this color. and That's the way I, I conceived the world at that point. The other was a globe of the moon that my parents got for us when, when I was very, very young. And then to round it out, I just love the Tolkien maps, the fantasy maps, in the, and, and other pieces of fantasy fiction. I'm wondering about your, your childhood uh, acquaintance with maps. Did you get on board with them really easily as a kid, and did, you, did you, your love of maps begin early? Well, I guess insofar as they were um, sort of like a crossword puzzle, that is to say they were something you could sort of um, sink into, um, find, follow, navigate. But I wasn't one of the people, the hundreds of people that I've met in my career whom, when I tell them what I work on, they say, I love maps. I've always loved maps. I would say my love of them came fairly late, and that was in graduate school when I was writing a dissertation focusing on the way Americans were taught to see the world as the nation became an international power. So as the United States became a world steward 
in the early 20th century, really um, climaxing in the post-World War II period, how did Americans understand geography? And so I had a history of school geography in there, a history of National Geographic. And then halfway through the research, I hit on this idea that one could also look at maps as ways that modeled the world for Americans. So I added a chapter on the history of Rand McNally and school atlases. And once I began to think about maps in um, ways that had power to influence, I was hooked. And my second book was devoted entirely to the transformation of mapping from the revolution to the early 20th century and how maps, as you said in your introduction, became more layered instruments of organizing information. And then this book um, is one that I hope to bring my love of maps as texts, as you said, as sources to a much wider audience. Well, this is radio, and so we're going to be very challenged here, but we can do it. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about some of these beautiful maps, and it's not when I say beautiful, I don't just mean aesthetically beautiful. I just, they're beautiful in all of the thoughts that they kind of dredge up and the possibilities. But something you just said earlier triggered for me the metaphor of a mirror. It, it sounded to me for a moment as that one of your points is kind of like the maps that we make mirror who we think we are. Um, is that getting yeah. anywhere productive? Yeah. Yeah, and um, there's a couple maps in here that are sort of images of aspiration, if you will. Um, the larger argument I'm trying to make in this book is that maps both give us snapshots into a moment in the past. That is to say they reflect uh, a time and a place according to one person or a group of people who made the map. Of course, the, it's always in the eye of the map maker. So maps reflect reality, but they also shape reality. They shape decision-making. And that, to me, is a wonderful two-sided coin of the power of maps. That is to say, they reflect what we knew, what we thought we knew, what we hoped for, what people feared. At the same time, they're quite often, at least the ones I've chosen, instruments of decision-making. They influence statecraft and diplomacy. They persuaded. Uh, they threatened um, they were instruments of propaganda. And so in all those ways, I think they're such rich um, portals, if you will. I don't claim that any single map in this book is a real or accurate or um, unmediated reflection of that time and place. Instead, I use these as jumping off points to tell stories about um, settlement and conquest, movement, discovery, um, but also things like reform and persuasion, um, uh, political power, um, technology and engineering. There's really no stories, or very few stories, I should say, that can't be enriched by looking at contemporary maps that related to them. Well, as I have become acquainted with this collection and your book of these 100 maps, it seems to me that you've gone to great lengths to select to winnow, to curate the kinds of maps that are going to kind of leap out of you and saying, whoa, I'm a map that has an agenda. I'm a map that is not just a normal map, whatever that would be. And, and I know that there, there, there probably is no such thing as just, but you know, a street map, how do I get from here down yeah. across town? I would call that a normal map. You've dodged those, haven't you? I have, and that's a really good point. This is not a history of mapping. Um, it is not also, it is not a history of discovery, that is to say, of the ever more accurate and precise maps of, let's say, North America. There are some in there that have to do with discovery, of course, but I was trying to tell a slightly more eclectic story. To your point, when I was selecting these maps, I realized they'd have to do two things. One is they need to tell some kind of interesting story or hook, but secondly, they have to be somewhat visually compelling. And there are many really important maps in American history that are simply not visually compelling, either because they're enormous and they wouldn't reproduce in the scale of a book like this, or they're very technical. Um, so, for instance, there were all kinds of wonderful maps and cross-sections of the Panama Canal, but not ones that would necessarily, as you put it, leap out at a reader. Do you see? And threading that needle was a real challenge for me. And there were a lot of maps that ended up being removed because I thought people would page right past them rather than be compelled to stop and dig a little deeper. Well, let me give an example of what I think you're saying here. One of the maps that I love in this collection 
is probably the one that gets to be the closest to being just a technical sort of scientific detached uh, uh, approach at uh, delineating the lay of the land. And, the, and I'm talking about the one that shows the, the historical meanders of the Mississippi River. So oh, it, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. map. And the thing, the thing is, there is accuracy there, or an attempt at accuracy. How would I know? Uh, but it looks like uh, there is an attempt to really tell the story of where all those twists and turns, all those meanders of, of the river over time have been. And it's stunning to see how alive that river has been and how it has moved how dynamic the, the water course has been. You see, that to, to me, that's like a very technical contribution of science. And yet for me, it just pops, not off the page, but right out of the book is something that has a, a marvelous story. Yes, and it's interesting that you, um, you queued up that one because for a couple of reasons. One is that it was so beautiful and captivating that the British edition of the book has it on the cover. And it's, um, it's become very popular in Britain, in part because it touches a chord with people interested in design. And what we're describing here is a map that took years to compile, a 13-sheet map that tried to map the history of the Mississippi, not just its present course, but its past courses over hundreds of thousands of years. And so to do that, Wilbur Fisk, I'm sorry, Harold Fisk, the um, geologist, took a team together, and they drew on everything from archival photos, um, from the air, to historical descriptions, to soil samples, to try to reconstruct the river. And to do that, they used brilliant color and laid one path on top of the other. Um, this map has become, in the digital age, a real favorite, like I said, of folks interested in design. And you'll see that every so often it goes viral. Um, journalists or bloggers will pick it up and explore it a little bit, um, but without telling the deeper story. There's, a, there's quite a bit of history here because Fisk was a bit of a handful. He was a very demanding person to work for. But he convinced the government in the midst of World War II that this was a compelling project, particularly given the flooding on the Mississippi that took so many people's lives in the 1920s. It kind of makes you crave a time-lapse representation in video of how that river has writhed like a snake over time. Uh, it's just a beautiful... Well, let me just ask you about this then. Uh, there are some inclusions here that at first blush, you might say they're surprising that you would have included them. Mm -hmm. and, and then after a little bit of reflection, you think, oh, my goodness, that's a huge part of the story of America. I'll, I'll, I've made my list of five, and I want to just share these with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'll get to them all. But um, Disneyland, a map of Disneyland. It's not really a – I think people can identify with, with this because so many people have been to Disneyland or Disney World or some Disney property that you're familiar you, – you could do the same thing at SeaWorld. You, you arrive there. They give you a, a map of this land and, and – uh, it's it's kind of contrived and it's kind of um, a picture book ish, you know, um, like a stylized quality. Uh, right? Yeah, there's a real stylized quality. But the, what you have is not one of their um, the ones that they would give to tourists. It's not like a map of how to get around. This is sort of a conjectural, conceptual drawing, almost a bird's eye view from that was given to, or was commissioned by Walt Disney in order to kind of. Uh, pitch the whole idea of building the place. Did I get that right? That's absolutely right. And that, what you've just described is the reason. So what I've got here is Disney's original sketch plan. Um, and it was the one that the organization was willing to let me reproduce. They're very careful about, um, about uh, their image and their reputation, as you may, you may know. And Walt Disney was looking for investors and in trying to convince people, including his brother, who were quite skeptical about this whole idea of a new kind of amusement park. Now, the reason I included a chapter or a mini story about Disney, like you said, it doesn't at first really make sense as consequential. But what it clicked in my head was this idea that the story of the 20th century in the United States is in a large part the story of American culture and the way that Americans have successfully branded um, and even exported a certain ideal of leisure. And it also told the story of the rise of Southern California, which was an epic story, right? Once they had mastered the water challenge, the story of California is extraordinary in terms of the sheer 
demographic shifts, um, the transformation of um, uh, what had been fairly underpopulated into one of the great urban centers um, of the country, if not the world, how that's possible, right? A new kind of uh, settlement patterns, of course, outside of a city and then much more sprawling kind of ideal. Disneyland is happening right at that moment, right? Right in the middle of the 20th century. Um, it has to do with post-war uh, consumption and um, disposable income and uh, vacations and new destinations, not to mention the Disney franchise, right, which is continues to be one of the most successful and uh, masterful, I think, um, organizations in terms of um, culture in, in several different types of media. On Constant Wonder, we're visiting with Susan Schulten. She's a history professor and has a book out called A History of America in 100 Maps. Also on my list of surprising maps is one of West Africa. Why would somebody have yeah. a, a West African map? Well, when you go to the history of slavery and when you think about of all the strands of our, our history, the story of slavery and, and the origins of, of peoples, of course, in retrospect, you say, of course you would have West Africa, but did you have to think that through and, and weigh it? And, 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 and how did you decide finally, oh, yeah, I'm going to include that? That's actually a great question. Um, and uh, to your point, there's actually two. There's one in the 16th century at the moment at which the Dutch displaced the Portuguese in the slave trade. And then there's a second one from the 1750s what I would call sort of the height of the African slave trade. So I had two, and they're part of several maps in the book that are of regions outside of North America. And that became clear to me uh, over time, that you can't tell the story of America, for instance, without telling the story, as you said, of West Africa, of Western Europe, of Eastern Europe in terms of the Holocaust, of Cuba in terms of the Missile Crisis, of Panama in terms of the engineering of the canal. So West Africa is the first example of that non-North American map that is crucial to the story. What I wanted and really could not find, except for the paramount map of slavery that occurs in the Civil War chapter, are maps that really helped people understood the system, understand the system of plantations. I couldn't really find one that was visually compelling as well as revealing. But the maps of the African coast were, to me, phenomenal because they told the story of imperial power. That is to say, all these imperial rivals trying to get in there, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the English, to get their share of this African trade, a subset of which, of course, was the tragic African slave trade. And so for me, the story is really, um, it tells not just the story of imperial rivalries, right, in that, in particularly the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, but they're also key for telling the story of how America became a profitable set of colonies. Many historians have argued that that could not have happened if it weren't for the importation of labor. And that's a, that's a pretty powerful argument, right, to say that the southern colonies in particular, would have died out had it not been for slave labor, particularly in cotton and then later rice. And to, uh, Pardon me, first tobacco, then cotton, then rice. Yeah. I'm going to jump to another one. Um, sure. And this one's just fun because I live in a part of the country which is often deemed flyover country or something like me that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> in Denver, yeah. It's That's like they've right. forgotten we exist. And so there's this yeah. funny, funny map. I think it's from the uh, late 30s, 1930s. Oh, it's wonderful, yes. Tell us about that. It's the map drawn from the perspective of a New Yorker. Of someone making fun of a New Yorker. Right? Okay. <laughs> um, no, that's exactly right. What you're referring to is a map from 1939. It was made for the World's Fair, actually, and became a hit souvenir at the fair. It's made by a guy named Daniel Wallingford, who's actually from Indiana, makes his way east, uh, first lives in Boston, then later lives in New York City. And he is just absolutely flabbergasted by the way in which Bostonians and then New Yorkers see the country. And what I think is masterful about his map here is that it's an entirely comic map that tries to put onto paper the mental maps that New Yorkers carry around in their head. <clears throat> so what you've got here for your listeners who don't have it in front of them is a sort of a picture of our country, but one where the Northeast, particularly New York and the boroughs, take up an outsized amount of space. New York 
in Manhattan are absolutely enormous. And then you have sort of a token um, gesture toward Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic, an enormous Florida, and then a confused South and a foreshortened interior to the point that if you'll notice, the Great Plains doesn't even appear on the map. We go straight from Missouri to Utah, (laughs) uh, and an entire region, central latitudes, are actually erased from the map. And then you have all kinds of uh, caricatures of people in Texas and California. One thing I think is really interesting about the map is that cities show up. Denver, even though Denver's in Utah, (laughs) right? Um, Chicago, Cleveland are on the map. And cities matter. But beyond that, there's great confusion, right, about these vast swaths such as the Dakotas, right, or Nebraska, which is erased entirely, or Kansas. And to me, the real poignant part of the map is that even though he's making fun of New Yorkers, this could be applied to pretty much all of us, right? All of us carry around very provincial shorthand geographies in our head that have everything to do with where we stand in the world. The world revolves around us. Well, one of your earlier book titles was The Geographical Imagination in America, uh, 1880 to 1950. And you're making such an amazing point here that we can't can't picture uh, our places, we can't picture our position in the world without imagining them somehow. And these tools are going to somehow betray the way we think about the world. We can't get away from that, it, it seems. That's right. And one of the stories I've told in earlier books and has a small part in this book is that until World War II and the advent of aviation, most Americans were taught to see the world, and perhaps you were too in that world map that you referenced at the outset, uh, on the Mercator projection, which, uh, if you're not familiar with it, essentially translates the globe onto a cylinder. And it was devised as a tool of navigation in the 16th century because direction is true. But, of course, it comes at tremendous cost in terms of um, exaggerating the northern and southern latitudes. Americans are carrying that picture of the world around in their head even as late as the 1930s. And some would argue, at least I made this argument, that part of America's reluctance around entering World War II had to do with their sense that the Atlantic and the Pacific were buffers. And in the age of aviation, distance, of course, is not measured in terms of absolute space, but in terms of time and the time it takes to use aviation to get from A to B. And that transforms the world. It transforms the centrality of the North Pole. It shortens the, um, the Atlantic and the Pacific and creates new pathways of vulnerability and power. And that required Americans to rethink their understandings of geography. I'm going to talk about a stereotype that a lot of people toy with and make fun of uh, the the various sexes, male and female, and to talk about how we do deal with maps. You know what I'm talking about, how they'll say that the men will use the map, but the women will use sort of, uh, you know, points of interest to to navigate through town. Uh, There's a fascinating map in your collection that tells me that map making and geography have not been the... Uh, exclusive domain of, of men over the years. But there's this girl from Vermont who, who was drawing a map. Tell us what, what she was up to and, and, and how girls in particular were, were pushed towards studying geography. Thank you. I, I really love that one. And for your readers, if they're interested, I've, I've uploaded several of these in high resolution to a site that is www.america100maps.com. What you're referring to here is one of hundreds and hundreds of maps that were school exercises for young girls in the decades after the revolution. After American independence, we see a vast expansion of education, in part because there is a real urgency around creating a civic identity for young men and young women, training future citizens. And so for the first time in mass, Girls are being educated outside of the home. This is not to say that this is the first generation of girls to be educated, but it is to say it's the first generation to be educated in schools outside of their home. And so what you see with this vast expansion of education is a need in part to fill up the day, but also to fill up the day with appropriate subjects. And geography was a science that was considered appropriate for young girls, not too threatening, 
right? Certainly appropriate in terms of their need to understand geography of their own country and of the world. And so one of the most common exercises for these young women would be to stitch or to paint or to draw maps of their country. And you've got a beautiful example here from a young woman at a very illustrious school in Vermont. And what I really love about this, this is part of her journal, her um, penmanship journal. So you can see that what she's really being told to focus on is the discipline of penmanship, um, learning different styles of what are called round and running hand. Um, geography is important, but it's also an exercise in discipline and art. We just have a, a minute and a half left. I'm, I'm just fascinated again. I think maybe it would be helpful to recap why you did this. There's something about the way maps function in our lives uh, could you just sort of summarize that for us again? Because I think you're really into these maps, yes, as artifacts, yes, as, perhaps as tools of navigation, but there's, there's a richer function than, than just getting around with a map. Well, I guess the way I'd summarize it is that maps both reflect and shape history. They are artifacts from places in time, and I tried to create it uh, or to draw together an array. So maps made not just by powerful state leaders, but also Native American chiefs and African-American reformers and young women, as you pointed out, and soldiers on the front. They reflect those particular places and times and people and the way they saw the world. But in some of those instances, maps also shape historical change. They frame the world for us. They show us what is possible. They are often made to persuade or to force someone into a particular action or decision. They record efforts to make sense of the world in physical terms, right? They are physical artifacts, and they tell us what people knew, what they thought they knew, what they hoped for, right? Their visions of the future. And then finally, I'd say that they remind us that the past is not just a chronological story, right, a story of time, but there, it's also a spatial story. And for all these reasons, I thought that the idea of gathering 100 artifacts across 500 years would help people sort of be inspired to think about the world beyond their frame of vision, right, that the world doesn't, didn't look always the way you think it looks now, and that the path we're in today is just one of many sort of infinite possibilities of how things might have unfolded. Susan Shulton, thank you so much for your time and for the book. I think it's a marvelous way to envision, to imagine, not just where we've been, but who we are. And we didn't even get to talk about where we're going, but maybe that's uh, to be saved for the next conversation we have. Susan Shulton, thanks for being with us here today on Constant Wonder. I'm delighted by your interest. Thank you so much. Susan Shulton, a history professor at the University of Denver, author of A History of America in 100 Maps. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening.